Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this. All of My Mochi's fabulous flavors like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings or the midnight munchies. Yeah, you know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week we come to you from Montego Bay, Jamaica, and the Conference on the Future of Travel, co-sponsored by the Ministry of Tourism here, along with the United Nations World Tourism Organization, the World Bank, and so many others. Well, what brings me to Jamaica other than the fact that I love this place and have been there so many times? It's an amazing conference done by the Ministry of Tourism here, the United Nations World Tourism Organization, and so many other major global organizations on well, the official title of it is, it's a long title, Jobs and Inclusive Growth, Partnerships for Sustainable Tourism. But I'm focusing on two words. In a world of disruption, uh, in uncertainty, uh, in economic, political, and of course natural disasters, the word sustainable tourism become that much more appropriate, timely, and some might even say crucial. And joining me to discuss that, the Honorable Minister of Tourism for Jamaica, Edwin Bartlett. Thank you, sir, for coming. Thank you, thank you very much, Peter. Uh, you know, we've been listening to some amazing speakers all day long, but the one thing they seem to have in common is to address perhaps the, the underlying reasons for this conference to begin with. There's a crisis out there. Uh, there's a crisis of communication. There's a crisis perhaps of, of understanding. Certainly there's a crisis of, of geography and geographical understanding. Um, and then there's also a crisis in the region itself because we're not just talking about Jamaica. We're talking about the Caribbean. Actually, we are, and the Caribbean is such 
a very special place in, in the global uh, space of tourism uh, and indeed is regarded as the most tourism dependent region on earth. What that means, of course, is that um, the livelihood of the Caribbean people, the economies of the Caribbean people, the stability of the Caribbean is predicated on sustainable tourism. So we, we are driven by the need, therefore, to, to, to respond to all the key touch points of sustainability and, and not to, to make it a talk, but to live it, to act it. Because if the sea level rises, then several of our islands would be inundated. It's not just the Maldives. It's not just the Maldives. And several of our townships even would be. So we have to be careful about that. And we have to take steps to, 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 to mitigate um, and indeed to be able to manage. Because part of the problem with us in the Caribbean is that we're going to be the victims of, 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 of not our doings things that we know very little about because our footprints, our carbon footprints is so small in relation to the wider footprints that are defining the whole issue of, of, of warming of the earth and, and, and solar heating. So we have a difficulty because, first of all, we are going to be the victim of something we don't know very much about. And secondly, we are going to be in a position where um, we are going to be required to manage it with the meager resources that we already have. And so the, the issue of vulnerability for the Caribbean is really, really very stark indeed. Because it's not just one issue in which you're vulnerable, you're vulnerable on a number of issues. Absolutely. And, and you know, I, I think about some of the other things that you can't control. You talk about, you know, what can you control, what can't you control. You can't control necessarily the geographic ignorance of many, many American travelers, for yeah. example. Yes. It's the joke that I like to tell of the couple that comes back on a vacation, and they go, where'd you go on your vacation? Aruba, where's that? I don't know. We flew. <laughs> right? Uh, so I'm, I'm going to acknowledge that, and, and maybe you can't control that, but you can control perhaps the messaging of what you're doing, how you're doing, or in, in the wake of two back-to-back -back Category 5 storms, right, whether you're doing it all. Yeah. Well, you're right about that, um, and that's the capacity we need to build. And that's part of the discussions that we're having here at this conference, and indeed we spent quite a bit of time on that today. Uh, how do we build that communication capabilities? How do we ensure that we use all the media that is available to us? Um, and how do we pro project the images and portray um, who we are and what we are? And to the point of the, the geographical ignorance that exists among our, our partners, um, how do we properly position the Caribbean and to enable an understanding that we are an archipelago of islands you know, with differences and that we're affected in different ways by um, climatic conditions. For example, some of our islands uh, have no hurricane at all. They're, some they're no outside the belt. Absolutely. And some have no earthquakes either. So what we need to do is to get that message across that this is a total um, country called the Caribbean similar to the United States of America with many states. So if something is happening But you've in never Florida, acted that way. Ah, well, that's a different issue. And that's one that is occupying our minds in tourism. And perhaps we in tourism should lead the way. Because even though there is a political construct called CARICOM, you know, it's, it's, it's observed more in breaches, you know. <laughs> and, and so tourism perhaps is the answer. And uh, the discussions we started today on multi-destination tourism is part of that solution. 
in terms of getting people to act together, to, to act um, uh, in unison, to harmonize policies and to look at how we can make access to the region very seamless. Well, you mentioned the word access. That's a key word. You know, most of my friends, and I'm embarrassed to tell you this, couldn't point to Jamaica on the map. But if you told them they could have an experience here that they either couldn't have anywhere else or they couldn't experience anywhere else better, they'd say, I want to go. Yes. And they'd be like the couple that just flew. Yeah. They still might not know where you are, but they'd have that experience. You've got to create that accessibility because... It's, my, it's always been my contention, and you may disagree with me on this, but once a place is accessible, it's amazing how fast it becomes affordable. You're so right. You're absolutely right, because to, to the point of tourism and travel, which has become more of a right, you know, than, than, than a, an affordable situation, because people are, are using their credit cards, they're, 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 they're taking credit arrangements in order to travel, because they believe that they're, this they're is a right. They're denying themselves other things in order to travel. Absolutely. So you're correct, that once they know the experience is there, and I think, Peter, what it takes us to is the reality that people travel to fulfill their passions. And whatever those passions are. So if you build out products around those passion points, wherever you are, they will come because that's what they want. I go back to the days when every Caribbean island, every Caribbean island nation, so that leaves out the U.S. Virgin Islands for a second, was operating very proudly as a separate entity uh, with, with separate rules and regulations, uh, separate policies, and for a brief period of time, their own airlines. Jamaica had an airline, Air Jamaica, I flew it many times. And in fact, you had a robust network at one point where you were flying uh, Montego Bay to London, Montego Bay to Los Angeles. It wasn't just to New York and Philadelphia. And then the airline went away. You look at the other airlines in the Caribbean, whether it's Cayman Air or uh, Bahamas Air, we're talking about a fleet of five or six planes. It's, it's not robust. It's not connecting much. It's just going to the usual suspects, if you will. And then you have the U.S. airlines. I think it's safe to say that the bulk of your visitors come from the Northeast in the United States. Um, and I'll include Miami in that too, but it's, it's the Northeast and Southeast, right? And you have the airlines that we've gone from eight major airlines in the United States competing for 88% of the market share to four airlines that own it. And they don't seem to have a, a real passion now for competition because with, with all due respect, I'm reminded of the movie The Godfather, because, you know, it was like the four mafia families. You do drugs, and they do prostitution, and somebody does gambling, and, and I don't come into your neighborhood, and you don't come into mine, and we all do well. So we're seeing these fortress hubs in Atlanta, in Chicago, in Dallas, and there's very little overlap because they don't need to anymore. And that really hurts the Caribbean, not just Jamaica, but all the islands. If they perceive you to be low yield, if they perceive you to be not giving them the revenue per seat, that that they want and that they claim that they need. And then it's a matter of aircraft allocation of saying, well, you know, we, why, do we fly to, why do we fly to Jamaica when we can take that plane and fly it to Chicago and every seat's going to give us $50 more a seat? That's a challenge that you have. Well, you know, Peter, I'm amazed at your knowledge of all of this and you've put it so well. It, 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 you are defining the dilemma that we face. And all of this really began in the 70s with the oil crisis. And the first oil crisis. Exactly. And that, that created um, a new uh, cost uh, challenge for, for, for airlines. And um, 
the result over that period and, and, um, was that there was a lot of what you call right-sizing, downsizing, and even capsizing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. so it, and, and, and some of the countries in the region had issues also because um, our economies were, were badly damaged by that oil crisis to the point where our ability to subsidize airlines literally became died. impossible exactly so air jamaica was a victim of that and a number of other airlines um, in the region and we also saw that uh, the whole uh, business model which hitherto had been understood and and, and uh, determined how airlines uh, were managed and structured in the united states was turned on its head so we ended up with a, a heavy degree of um, vertical integration and then other models which dealt with acquisition you know, and mergers. And we end up, as you're saying, with four um, major carriers or so. Now, the problem that we have in the Caribbean is that we have to incentivize access because it's no longer a case where you're flying because you're competing for a route. You're flying now because, as you correctly said, the, the route is yielding a certain level and the airlines are comfortable with their return. And in order to make sure that they're comfortable with their return, you have to participate. So the countries now have to, so to speak, come to the party. I was talking uh, earlier with, with other officials from other countries who, who did just that in the Caribbean. Yes, and, um, and we find a lot of that is happening. Now, some of us have established particular um, uh, agencies within the government to deal with that, to, to go out, to have discussions, to uh, develop a, a formula of engagement and, um, and, and, and to look at how we could work with the airlines, work with tour operators in order to bring the traffic into your destination. I think there are three essential methods that are used. One is what they call um, support for, for the air seats. Um, another one is... Which basically is you're guaranteeing the seats. Well, in a way. Yeah. Um, the other is to market with them behind the gateways, which we prefer. And the third is the revenue guarantee that you talk about. Now, we hate that, and we don't want to do I'm that. I'm shocked. Right. So, <laughs> but some countries have to, yeah. because that's the only way they're going to get. And then to go into new markets, it presents even a greater dilemma. Because earlier we were talking about the Chinese market, for example. And well, let and me put that in perspective, if I can. This year alone, we're talking about 130 million Chinese that will yeah. be traveling. Absolutely. If you had... Two percent of that market, <laughs> two. You'd, you'd own Jamaica. You're absolutely right. Yeah. But the, the issue of air connectivity now looms because this is a, a long-haul destination. It's also a particular um, equipment, a particular type of equipment that would have to be used to fly right, but they a, have across, across two, two countries, but which they have. Which they have. But, but the, the, the cost of doing it and whether or not you can have the volume into your destination. So it takes us to another kind of discussion. Well, a discussion me, that yeah. we, we raised earlier about multi-destination tourism and how do we collaborate to enable that level of access from the far distant locations. Well, let me go back to a concept that I've been embracing for quite a while, and it sort of disturbs me to even say it, but I really do believe that these days it's not the North American market that makes the difference in the long term. It's still the North American media. Isn't that interesting? The North American media still drives everything, but it may not be the North American market. And then you talk to the Chinese and ask them what they're reading. They're reading the North American media. Yes. So you may be right, 
to go beyond the North American market and reach out to the Chinese because they've got the money, they've got the time, they've got the, the, the passion, and they probably know more about Jamaica than Americans know about Cleveland. Yeah. Well, I tell you, though, um, when you analyze the American market and you look at the proximity to, let's say, Jamaica, if we drive the American market hard, we could be satisfied with that because um, if, you know, over 60 million Americans travel every year outside of the United States. Jamaica gets 1.5 million at the moment. We could do with two and a half. So we could get a, a, all of a million more visitors Where's from the, the United there's, there's States. There's a butt coming. Yes, and, and that would satisfy our position because with the Canadian market as we have it and the European market as we have it, that would bring us straight from stopover arrivals well over three million. And three million stopover plus cruise is adequate, in my mind, to drive the economy of Jamaica and to allow for the flow-through effect of the tourism dollar to well, be experienced and felt by the people. Well, let's get levels. down to some basic dollars and cents here. The average Chinese on vacation in America, their weekly spend is staggering. Yes. It is, when I tell people this, they go, you're kidding me. It's in the thousands. Yes, you're right. Okay? The average cruise ship passenger spend per passenger in Jamaica is it about $1.97. No. You know where <laughs> I'm going. No, I know where you're going, but it's much more than that. The fact is, however, that the, the cruise uh, is in my head, well, not just in my head, but in actual fact, the cruise represents about 2% of the total earnings per of the tourism sector. No. Well, then it's... it's, it's, it's but, yeah. but, 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 the cruise has another value. The cruise It has introduces people. It, and it also has the fastest, quickest um, convertibility within the system. In other words, the cruise docks now. The passengers come off. It's immediate money in the pockets of the little people who are selling their wares and are, um, you know, merchandising... Their, their craft and, and, and homemade products. It, it, and that is the, the big impact of it. Whilst for the stopover in the old days, before um, blockchain and, and, and PayPal and so on, um, <laughs> we, were, we were talking about up to six to eight months before the people, got paid. people got paid. So now we're talking about uh, a much faster turnaround. But the cruise has always been instant convertibility. And I think that is one of the reasons that um, it, it tends to be a favorite among particularly smaller um, islands in the Caribbean. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. now is an old friend of mine. I've known him for a long time, and it was so great to see him here today as one of the keynote speakers. I can now, I can now address you as the Honorable Prime Minister of St. Lucia, Alan Chastanet. Well, all you've done is just add the Prime Minister part. 
Because oh, yeah. <laughs> always been honorable. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we just came from your speech, in which you talked about, you know, the, the, in the world of disruption, and we're seeing it, whether it's economic, political, or most recently in natural disasters, the, the, the two back-to-back -back hurricanes really was sort of a wake-up call for tourism in general to bring all the islands in the Caribbean hopefully closer together to realize what they need to do. Absolutely, I mean, um, it was very clear that uh, we needed to have a, a regional marketing campaign that was global. Um, because right after the hurricanes, everybody thought every, all the countries were damaged and probably people were looking to cancel their vacations. So well, that's was, almost like a, a geographical ignorance. It, it is, but I mean, that's the reality. I mean, people are very busy and people are not going to take the time. So when, when they hear words like devastated, um, uh, trash, not open, you know, closed for business, um, nobody's going to try to figure out which specific island it is. And then when they show these hurricanes, they show them covering the entire Caribbean. So it's very easy for people, even though it's years to make that jump. to make that jump. So unless there is a source, one general source of information, of factual information, and given the age of fake news that we're in now, um, it's even more important. Why are you looking at me? <laughs> um, you know, there need, it's even more important to have that one general position and, and, and to really give people regular, regular updates. And, but and you didn't have one. And that's the sad part, right? That, that here we have a region that is so incredibly dependent on tourism um, and that this, this is a basic tool that we do for each one of our countries um, that we have not understood that the world sees us as one destination. Now, we keep on thinking of ourselves as these independent destinations and self-sufficient by each other and we're not you know uh, people if they're happy with uh, one one vacation in one part of the Caribbean are going to go to a different part of the Caribbean I mean St. Lucia is an example 60% of the people who've been to St. Lucia have already been to Jamaica so intrinsically I would say I want Jamaica to do extremely well because if they do well you do well correct and and that brings up another area because when you take a look at the real distances involved it's not that it's not that great it's not that great, but we make it great. Because unfortunately, the inter-island connections um, are not there. Um, so, you know, more often than not, people will have to go back up to Miami to go to another island. Well, with all due respect, Mr. Prime Minister, the Caribbean is sort of like the burial ground with so many failed airlines, including one here, Air Jamaica, mm -hmm. right? At one point, Air Jamaica was flying to London. They were flying to Los Angeles. They had a great route network, and yet they couldn't, they couldn't make it on. Well, you know, um, there's an interesting number. In 2002, the airline industry made, um, lost more money than it had made in its history. Well, we all know how that happened, yes. Right. That was, people were chairing, declaring Chapter 11, in some cases Chapter 22 and right. Chapter 33. Right, I mean, and, and so, you know, now you have a consolidation in the airline industry, and the Caribbean has been badly affected because even after um, the 9-11, you then had the world recession, um, and we're still trying to recover from, from, from the world recession. Do you think some of it has, let, let's say the recession didn't happen. Let's say 9-11 didn't happen, which we, I think we'd all love to say that. But it's just basic economics and airline economics. Has it been one of the Caribbean's problems that the airline industry has traditionally looked at the Caribbean as low yield and is not a business destination where they couldn't get the, the markup they wanted so they could reallocate their planes to where they get more per seat mile by flying their aircraft somewhere else? Um, I, I think there's some of that, but the fact is, is that we're we're a good a good revenue. I mean, American Airlines is an example. Their Miami hub was the only part of their business that was making money for a very very long time, of which the Caribbean and Latin America was a core part of that. But so much of that was cargo. 
cargo, but, but, but also traffic. I mean, yeah. be, but it's all how you're going to be able to price the whole thing out. But if the Caribbean had a better marketing campaign and was driving more business and more demand to the region, you probably would see it very differently. And the other thing is that America has one civil aviation authority, FAA. Jamaica has a civil aviation authority, you know, the OECS has a civil aviation authority, Bahamas has a civil aviation authority. So we've really made it more difficult for airlines to succeed flying within our region. You know, you mentioned American Airlines, and not to, to point at them, but St. Lucia's a good case in, in, in point with American Airlines, because at one point, unless my information is wrong, American Airlines came to St. Lucia, I think before you were prime minister, and basically said, yeah, we know our service here isn't, isn't as much as you'd like, uh, but if you want us just to continue the service we've got, we want you to pony up money. It wasn't for um, to keep the existing service, it was to add more service. Yeah. Um, and so uh, we call them uh, revenue guarantees. Um, you know, unfortunately, small towns in America go through that. They're doing the same thing. The same thing. But and in small towns in America, it worked. It worked in some cases. I mean, yeah. we, we, we've paid American, we've paid Delta, we've paid um, United. Um, well, once one does it, they all line up. They all do. And, and, and I think that basically when people are talking about new routes, that that's, they generally want to be able to get that risk taken care of. But it just means that we've got to spend more money marketing in order to be able to create that demand. So uh, air, aviation can be very successful in the Caribbean, um, but the product... Um, and the marketing all have to work in tandem to make it work successfully. Yeah, because I go back to, to those days, um, I heard about the American incident, I'll mm -hmm. call it that, uh, where St. Lucia was actually paying American to bring more service down. Mm -hmm. Are they still flying more service? Yeah, I mean, we, well, we, went, we went up at one point, we had an, a flight out of New York. Um, and then when JetBlue started to fly out of New York, they stopped. Um, so we, we had at one point two flights a day out of Miami, and now we're back down to the one flight on a bigger plane. Um, but, you know, American went through its own uh, problems. Sure. And, then, and then the loss of American Eagle. I mean, we used to have six American Eagle flights a day. Out of San Juan. Out of San Juan. Of course. Well, the whole San Juan hub is still a mystery to me about how they just completely decimated that. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, they used to own, American Airlines owned San Juan. Yeah, but it was, it was a simple formula. I mean, American had a hub into Puerto Rico, and then when the lower cast carriers came in, um, and started to dilute that business. So generally speaking, for a hub to work, you need 50-50. 50% of the business needs to be staying in Puerto Rico and 50% going on. It got to the point in Puerto Rico where only 30% of the business was staying in Puerto Rico. They were Rico, all connecting. And they were all connecting. Which was great for you. Great, great for us, but I mean, it was not viable. And then when the, the low-cost carriers started flying into the secondary airports in Puerto Rico, that really just made it very unviable for America. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come on and fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. Joining me now, the Come Secretary General of the Caribbean Tourism Organization, Uwani I'm fine, Peter, thank you. Now, you and I go back to days when you didn't have that title. Yeah, that's true, that's you true. You were what? That is quite true. Well, I started uh, about 100 years ago when I was working for the island of Barbados, which is where I'm from. Right. And uh, I worked for the Barbados Tourism Authority, as it was then called, and we might have met perhaps in the 80s when I was uh, living and working in perhaps New York Perhaps at a rum distillery. Yeah, <laughs> not a bad place to be. <laughs> <laughs> but... At this conference, we're dealing with some pretty serious issues that have been talked about for a long time but haven't been dealt with. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the, the, the biggest issue on your plate? One of the issues, Peter, is 
absolutely resources. The point was made earlier today that the Caribbean, being the most tourism-dependent region in the world, should also be the most tourism-competent. And that's true. However, that does not mean that we should have the biggest of that, the tallest of that, the biggest swimming pool, and so on. That's not going to happen because we don't have those kinds of resources. But we should have the highest quality of, of experience, and no one should care more than we about that experience. And it's true. It does, you know, I, I worry about every word that ends in ST, best, greatest, most. It's meaningless. You have to have a better experience, otherwise it doesn't mean anything. Sure. Sure. One of the problems that we have, though, back to your question about the, the biggest issue, is the, the fact that there aren't enough resources to get the word out properly. Now, when we look around the world, tourism is a highly competitive business, so everybody's in it. Big countries are in it. People with very large budgets are in it, and they are able to crowd out the messaging, and we cannot compete with that. So we must find ways in the Caribbean to be much more targeted, much more niche-specific, so that our message gets to people who are the right targets for Caribbean tourism. But you know, you talk about crowding out the message. I talk about the quality of the message. You know, I see all these mega countries, if you will, spending millions of dollars to hire consultants to come up with slogans that the audience today knows very well from the minute they hear them are not relatable to the country that that's doing it. Um, you know, incredible India doesn't make me want to go to India. You know, Thailand, land of smiles. <laughs> okay, they're all smiling. I'm sorry to hear that. Something must be really wrong if they're all smiling. So it's also the quality of the messaging. It is the quality of the messaging, and it is making sure that the message is appropriate to the particular audience. You see, all tourism destinations, Caribbean destinations and others, really need to spend a lot more time looking at who is coming to your country now. If you're running a tourism destination or you're running a big shop, no matter what your business is, if you spend the time to try and figure out who the people are that are coming to you now, who your customers currently are, you are in a much better chance, you have a much better opportunity opportunity to figure out how to get more who are just like them, how to use them as your brand champions, how to use them as your influencers, and then you stop wasting your message on people that might be completely irrelevant to the kind of experience that you're trying to sell. Start looking more carefully at who's giving you business now and find more just like them. All right, so give me an example of a campaign that that failed. Well, I think that campaigns fail all the time for the reason that you just mentioned. You throw lots of money out there, you throw things up against the wall, and you hope that they will stick, that something will stick and, and something will work. So campaigns fail in a colossal way. Look, the old advertising uh, uh, adage, which we certainly didn't create, is that, you know, half the, the, the money you spend is wasted, but you don't know which half. <laughs> <laughs> True. True. So, so in today's or, world, or there's another way. You could put everything on sale for a dollar ninety-eight and fill every hotel room and call yourself a success. That's absolutely right. So you have to fill those rooms profitably because another adage: you cannot possibly lose five dollars on every sale and make it up on volume. You have to make sure that you're filling your source. Uh, your, your, your resources, you're using your resources to your best advantage. Those hotel rooms and those airline seats have to be filled with people who are actually going to deliver a profit for you no matter what business you're running. And here's the double-edged sword. In tough times, the only thing that the travel, that the travel industry has resorted to it's massive discounting, which doesn't solve that problem. No, it's a, it's a race to the bottom. It's a, it's a very difficult thing to recover from, and I'll tell you why. And, and 
consumers ask this kind of question all the time, and justifiably so. If they're paying $100 for a room tonight, uh, and uh, in a year's time they discover that discounting has occurred and now that room is, is being sold at $85, A, they feel a little bit cheated that they paid 100 the last time they came. Now it's, you know, it's 85 or their friend or their neighbor has come and, and they've them. got it for 85 But what gets really difficult is that when you try to put that rate back up to where you know it really belongs, the consumer said, well, wait a second, what's changed? Why is it now all of a sudden worth so much more? That's the problem with discounting. Should there be a rapid change in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat, free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant $75.63. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. Professor Emeritus at George Washington University, Donald Hawkins. Professor, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Peter. I mean, this is a conference that brings together world leaders, ministers, uh, corporate CEOs, foundation presidents, NGOs, and it's got a nice general title of the future of tourism, but in a world of disruption, in which either someone's a disruptor or a disruptee, it's, it's difficult to almost anticipate change, except for the fact that it, there's going to be change. And then, how do you quickly run with it when you have all these different entities who up until now have not necessarily been working together? It's a real challenge. Uh, I think the more we can you know, move tourism to a place concept, the places where people live, the places where people visit, where, where people work. Uh, my recent work at GW has been more focused on identifying walkable urban environments, uh, and I think it's a good fit for tourism. I think, I think it's a great fit for tourism, my goodness. You know, here we are in Jamaica as an example. <clears throat> people will come to a resort, and they'll never leave the resort. Yeah. They never get out into the neighborhoods. They never immerse themselves into the real culture. They're going for their comfort level, if you will. And I understand that. I think you do, too. But if you can get them out, not just in Jamaica, in Chicago, um, and walking, it changes their perspective and it changes their emotional connection as well. Yeah, it does. Uh, in Washington, uh, we've done several studies. We've identified 34 walkable urban areas in the Washington metro area. Represent about 55% of the spending, uh, about 40% of the good jobs, and only 1% of the real estate. So, from all those perspectives, it makes sense. But you know, walkability is threatened by the automobile, you know, and the congestion and so on. So we need to find ways of managing the places where the people who live in those places have some say over what happens. Well, look, look at what happened in New York when they, when they redid the High Line. Yeah, right, a good I example. I mean, there's the best example I can think of in an urban area where <laughs> abandoned railroad tracks were repaved and made it an elevated walkway for people in, in, in lower Manhattan to rediscover their own city. Yeah, and it stimulated real estate development too in that whole area, it was very, very successful, yeah. So have you been able to identify the challenged areas? Yeah, well, you know, I think, 
Eduardo Fios today. Uh, also from George Washington the, University. The future, yeah, of tourism uh, in the Caribbean region or the future of tourism, you know, anywhere. Uh, you know, started talking about innovation. What is innovation? Uh, in my sense, it's coming up with prototypes, making sure they work, and then taking them to scale. In terms of well, the travel industry understands scale. They do. They they don't understand necessarily the innovation part. Yeah, that's true. You know, so I, I, I think uh, from the management point of view, finding ways in which we could identify local areas that have attractiveness to local residents and to the tourists. For example, you have the historic preservation area. Uh, we have the cultural heritage. We have different kinds of approaches that deal with shopping and so on. We have created business improvement districts, uh, essentially to allow the people who are investing in that area to put aside funds so they can uh, make sure that the place is safe, clean, and then they run events to attract tourists there. I think those kinds of activities that engage local people, local businesses, where they then reach out to tourists and not simply be discovered, you know, uh, yeah, well, and yeah, overrun. Yeah. But we also, well, yeah, I want to talk about the overrun <clears throat> part. But first, let's talk about how do you reach out to begin with because there are so many stereotypes you have to work with. Number one, look at Detroit. If I mention Detroit to most people, they go, why would I want to go there? No, you want to go there now. Detroit's coming back in a big way. They're revitalizing their entire yep. urban blighted areas that are now, I mean, capitals of culture and capitals of development and innovation and art and music. Mm -hmm. I mean, now's the time to go, but you've got to get people to get there. Yeah, but it's, it's the concept you mentioned of, of the place uh, centering around not only rehabilitation, but uh, new forms of development. And I think your tie-in, as you mentioned, with uh, the creative sector, creative industries is very, very important. Uh, shopping is always a part of the effort. Uh, uh, but then, you know, finding ways. You, you mentioned earlier in, in the session uh, Airbnb. Yeah. You know, there is this uh, thesis that people really want to live like locals. But the locals. Oh, it's more don't. than a thesis. I see it demonstrated every day. <clears throat> it is, yeah. But that would assume that the locals want them to be there. <clears throat> and well, that's, areas, our, that's yeah. our problem. In certain yeah. areas, you have strangers that don't belong, and it's creating threats. So how do we prepare local people for the Airbnb-type visitor? Well, you know, you have three different areas of this double-edged sword. One is people looking for an authentic, genuine experience. Yeah. One, on the other hand, is people trying to monetize their own living arrangements, their houses, their apartments. And then, uh, then the third thing is something that you just touched upon, which may not apply to certain parts of the Caribbean, but it certainly applies to places like Venice and Barcelona, parts of uh, Hawaii, and we go on. And that is over-tourism. But let's go to the first two. The reason why most of my friends stay in Airbnb is that they become sort of, I won't say angry, but they become bored with the cookie-cutter major brand-name hotels. Um, and they don't necessarily think that they need to be in a hotel to have Wi-Fi. They can have Wi-Fi anywhere. Um, and they're looking to get into the neighborhoods. That's one reason. The second reason is price competition. They think they're, they're perceiving the Airbnb experience to be more valuable to them, to have more value. On the other end of that are the locals who are renting out their apartments or houses who are counting dollars. 
It's a great way for them to pay their mortgage every month or for them to subsidize their rent. Um, and then you reach the point of diminishing returns that you're suggesting is that you have too many people coming to, to those locations that are not respectful of the, of, the, of the local neighborhoods or the culture or are in violation of local ordinances. Mm. And next thing you know, uh, there's a problem. And of course, the hotel groups are lobbying local municipalities to bust the Airbnb guys on violation of city codes, not payment of taxes, violating insurance policies, or homeowner agreements in condominium associations. Yeah, all of those things are, are issues. There's also new investment incentives for uh, real estate investors or even people want to buy homes if they agree for a period of three years you know, to use Airbnb. They can get up to fifty thousand uh, dollars for their down payment. So there's a number Whoa, of very, on, very innovative based real on that financial schemes. premise. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know many people who wouldn't want to at least be interested in that. Yeah, and then you know Airbnb is also moving toward the host as more of a local guide, leading the tourists to other activities that have a transaction so that that local host can also benefit. And get additional revenue. Yes, additional well, revenue. in that yeah. model, uh, I, I'm, I'm more or less sure that was inevitable because pe you know, in a world where content is king and people want that authentic, mm -hmm. genuine experience, sure. it's not just that you're living in the neighborhood. You still need to know where to go. You still need to know right. what's not in the brochure or the guidebooks that you can do because you know about it. Right. right? Yeah. Those hidden gems. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I like the whole movement, you know, that Airbnb is spurring. And by the way, it's not just Airbnb. There are other companies that are doing this. Oh, there are other companies that are yeah. uh, following the same model when it comes to cars. Yep. There's even a number of companies that have followed the same model in terms of boats. I mean, it's... it's, it's Recreation vehicles. Yeah. Yeah. All these expensive assets that really are That are sitting idly when yep. you're not using them. Right. So, the future, sir? Well, you know, the, 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 I've been in tourism now 60 years, and I've seen the ups and downs. But we are truly a resilient sector. And I think as we go through these bumps and, and difficulties, we come out of it better in the final analysis. Where are the wagons? The wagon is too slow. Can't you ride? It's not that he can't ride. How is it you put it home? They're dangerous at both ends and crafty in the middle. Why would I want anything with a mind of its own bobbing about between my legs? Kevin Furtick from the Al is it Alcott Americas? Correct. First of all, what's your definition? And you're here at the conference, and you're going to explain to me why you're here at the conference. But first, I want you to tell me your definition of, of sustainable tourism. There is no one agreed upon definition, but... As I suspected. Yes. Uh, the way I imagine it is tourism, in a, travel and tourism in a way that respects not only the present culture and the present uh, situation, but also that of the future. Meaning travel and tourism in a, in a way that not only benefits the local community as it is, but also ha as it will be. Which, of course, requires you, if you're a responsible traveler, to follow the money. That's always the case. Not everybody does that. <laughs> and the travel industry has done, a, I happen to think, a terrible job of allowing travelers to connect those dots. For example, it's one thing to put a card on my bed saying, please help us save the environment by not washing your towel. It's another thing if I say, hey, Peter, if you got two minutes, can we show you the laundry? 
at the hotel so you can see how many pounds of phosphate we didn't have to use today and that that got flushed right into the to the sewer system I mean, you see where I'm going. Oh, environmental ed education is the name of the game. Uh, it's at a premium, and you see a lot of corporate uh, branches, a lot of large companies doing a lot of the, the necessary groundwork to improve their own environmental profile, but they don't take the next step to educate their consumers or their stakeholders about it. So, okay, now that brings us full circle to why are you here? Well, I'm here because of climate change, first and foremost. Um, my, the company I've joined, Alcott Americas, is a company that helps others navigate the transition toward a more sustainable future. What we do is we develop uh, strategies and tools for greenhouse gas management. So, for example, I have a company. Let's say I have a hotel. Yeah. Right? And I've done it my way for 25 years. Yeah. And I'm making lots of money. You I can tell from the suit. Thank you. Well, thank you for dressing. Now you show up and you're going you're to try to convince me that I can transition to be a more responsible hotel operator and owner, but at the same time, not spend a lot of money. Not just that you can, that you must. This is a market trend. This is ev Everybody is moving in the same direction, just at different paces. Uh, but yes, you can absolutely improve. You always should look to improve. Uh, there are a lot of solutions that have a good ROI, a good return on investment, and improve the environmental profile of your hotel. Um, I mean, look, it's one thing to recycle the French fry oil and turn it into biodiesel. Sure. We sort of get that one now, right? And, and the trucks that are running on it smell like a bad McDonald's. Okay, we sort of get that one too. But I get the cause and effect, and I can connect the dots. Give me a tougher one. Sure. Um, if you're a hotel, you probably have a list, uh, a relatively large list of primary suppliers who in turn have their own suppliers and this trickles down until there is somebody, uh, you know, working a field or cutting, uh, you know, timber in a forest somewhere. These, you know, further down the supply chain, these areas could be very vulnerable or very much affected by climate change. And that, you're not aware of it? No. No, because very few companies are aware of anybody past their tier one suppliers. So are you trying to educate these owners and operators to ask the right questions? Absolutely. And think the right way. Which just means be conscious that this is a very far-reaching problem. It's going to affect every industry. So let me, let me start with this idea. I have a hotel restaurant. I order napkins mm -hmm. in bulk. All right? They're paper. They come from a supplier. Mm -hmm. Now you want me to ask the question, where do they get the paper from? And the paper came from a, from a restricted forest somewhere in Borneo. All of a sudden, they're deforesting this entire forest to make my napkins. Okay, I'm smart enough to realize that's a problem. I, w I don't want to buy from the supplier anymore. So my first contact is with that supplier, not with the guys in the forest in Borneo. Right. Nor would it ever be. Now I say to them, okay, show me a different way to make the napkins and I'll buy from you. Yeah. Just like that. Yeah. It's, a, it's really a matter of asking the right questions. Um, if you're familiar with the CDP, the Carbon Disclosure Project, it's one of the largest disclosure platforms for environmental data in the world. A huge number, a huge number of companies are starting to report uh, on this platform, and it's a really good tool for people to try to understand what their suppliers' risks are. And so you have a metric now? There are several metrics. Are you finding that the, the, the travel providers, whether it be hotels, airlines, cruise ships, tour operators, are listening to in in deferring amounts uh, you always have leaders uh, Hilton for example has been 
one of the leaders in the hotel industry. They have an, a remarkable energy efficiency program called Lightstay uh, that helps them track their own impacts, but they also uh, offset their unavoidable impacts. Um, that means that you know you reduce your own environmental profile where you can, but where you can't, you can still pr uh, invest in sustainable projects elsewhere in the world. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. But I would walk 500 At this conference today, we have prime ministers, ministers of tourism, Fortune 500 CEOs. We have uh, some of the NGOs, the important NGOs doing such hard work that we talk about all the time on this show. And we also have a sector that's brand new to this business when you think about the word sustainable tourism, and that's academia. And joining me now, who's running the new program in Monterey, California, on sustainable hospitality, Roberta Atsuri. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you, Peter. So it is a brave new world for, for the universities, isn't it? It is. It's a brand new program. We started this program in 2015. So and, and you're the only one in the country. I, uh, <laughs> right? I, mean, I mean, That's how we like to think. I, yes. Exactly. It's the only um, program in the country that addresses sustainable hospitality, sustainable tourism. and. Okay, so let's get to a definition of terms. What is sustainable hospitality? Sustainable hospitality is... Uh, hospitality that addresses the principle of sustainable development to sustainability which are we include three pillars economic sustainability social cultural sustainability and environmental sustainability so all the and you, operations, need, and you, and you need all three all three you need all three you can't just do one <laughs> right. otherwise that's what we call that ecotourism or sustainability light and we don't want that. We don't want that. But you have to educate people as to what it means and then how they can apply it. Yes, absolutely. We uh, we work with local hotels, local attractions. This is in, in Northern California. Uh, Central, Central California, yeah. Monterey Bay. We are fortunate to have a great um, organization, which is the Monterey Bay Aquarium. which uh, one, of the, one of the coolest places on the planet. I agree. You can still pet the fish there. You can still do it. <laughs> I know. I know. And they do a great job at educating guests from all over the world and um, we are in partnership with them and a lot of other hotel and uh, hospitality businesses that are really trying their best to make sure that their operations are run sustainable meaning that they hire local people so the money stays in the community the money stays in the community doesn't leak out also what they do is trying to address all the environmental sustainability issues that we have, for example, we're trying not to uh, consume too much water. One example is when a customer sits at the restaurant, unless they ask for specifically for water, the waiter is not gonna pour water into their glass unless they ask, and there's a sign. So you know, in California, we have a big problem with drought. So we're trying to address water scarcity, and that, right? And that's a simple thing, but it's doable. It's doable. Also, we're trying not to use plastic bottles as much as we can because, as you know, there is a big island of plastic. Oh, we know about the Pacific Island patch. Exactly. Yeah. So we teach our students how to run operations in hospitality that address sustainable development, 
uh, principles. So, and they in turn have to then, if they get that job, convince their owners. Because, the, because yes. otherwise, these guys are just looking at a bottom line figure and they don't understand it's not how much it costs, it's how much it's worth. Exactly. Our students become ambassadors of sustainability. And they once they go out in the world, they become the first stewards of environment and sustainability. And, and they will tell their bosses that what they do is not always right. And they become they become stewards and ambassador of good principle and good hospitality uh, operations that are run a little different. This morning uh, here at the conference, we talked about business as usual, and we talked about paradigm and change of paradigm. So how to make a change and how to positively impact the world, which is not necessarily how we've been doing things in the past. No, it's not business as usual anymore. It's business unusual and business unconventional but directed in a much more sensible and much more environmentally responsible way. Yes, and it's not only environmental, it's also respecting the culture of the place, respecting the people, it's inclusion, it's, uh, when, we talk, when we talk about environment, not environmental, I'm sorry, um, sustainability in terms of socio-cultural principles, we mean to respect the culture of the locals. Uh, this is your captain speaking. There is absolutely no cause for alarm. The word sustainable tourism are particularly appropriate at this time of disruption in the world, and a lot of people have input into that, including my next guest, uh, Sally Felton, from the, the Travel Foundation, a charitable organization. But when you say the Travel Foundation, that can mean anything. So, so tell me what exactly you do. Sure. Uh, the Travel Foundation has been around 15 years. We've been funded primarily by the private sector to bring together public and private sector stakeholders to work on sustainable tourism uh, in a more collaborative way. So we run a variety of different projects in different countries all around the world and we look at trying to do tourism differently. All right, so give me an example of, of one of those projects and how you're doing tourism differently. Sure, probably best example is Jamaica because that's where what we are. What a coincidence, here we are. <laughs> uh, we've been working in Jamaica for over 10 years, but we've got a program that we've been running now for four years, and it's been looking really quite specifically at how to increase the spread of revenue outside of the main tourist areas to the local population throughout Jamaica. Um, it's got a variety of different areas of work, but one quite specifically focusing on the tourists themselves and what they can do when they're in Jamaica. Well, you see, that's, that's a particular interest to me because I, it, it's a sad statement, but most American tourists, at least in Jamaica, never leave the resort. They, they just stay there and they're at the pool and they're, they're sipping their pina coladas. And by the way, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, but they never get a chance to immerse themselves in the communities, not necessarily in a, in a charitable way, even in an educational and, and uplifting way. No, so how do you get them out of the resorts to do that? It's actually quite hard. It's quite I hard. Know. Um, and that's the core focus of this piece of work is actually people come here for sun, sand, sea, and they get that in the resorts because they're really high-quality resorts. But equally, there's, there's so much more to do outside. So a lot of it is about just quite simply providing really good information. What are the local tips? What are the good things to see and do? Right, and but I land, at, okay, I land at the airport. I've got my flip-flops. I've got my bathing suit. I've got, hopefully, I've got my sunscreen. I'm heading to the resort. Who's going to give me that information? So we've got 
a campaign called Warm Welcome Campaign where we're training up resort ambassadors and they're going to be at airports, they're going to be at hotels and they're there to be the front face to say to tourists as they arrive, hey look, welcome to Jamaica. This is a great country, there's a lot to see and do and there's a great culture here and here's some maps and here's some information about all of the things you can do outside of your hotel um, and all of the things you can do outside of even the resort you're in if you go and explore a little bit further. And, you know, dealing with people's you know, comfort levels, how often are they going to say, okay, great, let's go? Yeah, I think that's one of the, the biggest problems we've had to deal with is the perception of security. Um, obviously, Jamaica's different to the US. Um, but you know what? It's, it's about just finding the right, the right products and services that are out there and making sure that the people within Jamaica have the right training and the ability to actually know how to deal with tourists, what they like, what they don't like, how to, how to treat them, um, how to move away from hassle and hustle, which is a different cultural experience that happens here. Happens um, in Brooklyn. <laughs> in a slightly different way, yeah. but it does. <laughs> it does. Um, yeah. All right. That's what you're doing in Jamaica. Have you had any success? Yeah, it, it's definitely been really, really interesting times. We've been doing a lot of work with one of the craft markets here in, in Montego Bay um, and looking at the way in which they deal with tourists when they come into the market. Um, and what they've been finding is that if they take a really different approach uh, to the people when they're coming in, that the guests are staying longer, uh, they're buying more, they're more interested in what's going on. Um, and as a result of that, the tour operators are putting on more buses to the actual craft market to actually bring more guests there, uh, which is something that they weren't doing previously. So we're starting okay, to increase but that's, fall. That's a shopping experience. What about a cultural and immersive experience? Well, half of what we want to do at the craft market is make it more cultural and, and immersive because it's it's, it's artisans there that are making crafts, often using traditional methods, but also there's the opportunity to have live music, have food events, and a whole variety of other things that bring in uh, more than just artisans. Um, Are you getting any government support? Yeah, we're getting we're getting loads of government support, which is great. We're working really closely with uh, TPDCO, which is the Tourism Product Development Company, and they do all of the licensing and the regulating of all of the various different um, organizations and tourism businesses out there, and they're delighted to be part of this warm welcome campaign. Um, so they're looking at how can they utilize all of this information that we're pulling together and roll it out more broadly because at the moment we're only working in Montego Bay and they want to spread it out across the whole of Jamaica. And what feedback are you getting from the visitors? They're really enjoying it. They're enjoying it because it's different. Um, they're enjoying it because they didn't know that this is what they were going to get when they booked their holidays to Jamaica. So it's something different. It's something that they can tell stories to their friends and families when they go home. So they're asking for what else can they do as a result of this. Uh, so rather than one day going out, they might go out two or three. They might come back. All of those things that are really important to and Jamaica. And by the way, I'm a huge fan of leaving the resorts. No, no offense intended to the resorts, but the bottom line is, you know, you know what you're going to get at the resorts, you know, but if you just go outside, you, then you actually have conversations. You actually meet people that can sustain long-term relationships too. Yeah, and it's about knowing what to expect. Knowing to expect that you're going to have people in Jamaica coming up and approaching you and being very friendly and um, effusive as they are. And as long as people understand that's and what's, what's going to happen. And what's wrong with good. that? There's nothing, nothing wrong with wrong that at all. That as long as they know it's coming, that's all. Because I think otherwise people are a bit guarded. What's the website? For the for you. For us is travelfoundation.org.uk. British based. We are British based, but we've got various different offices around the world. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. 
Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts.